Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Once a child or young person discloses their thoughts, plans or acts related to self-harm and suicide, mental health professionals rapidly enter a space which requires both clinical and ethical decision making. This can include sharing this information with parents sensitively but clearly. Parents are likely to respond to this news with a range of experiences and emotions, commonly shock, denial, anger, powerlessness, guilt, shame or embarrassment. This can often be challenging for mental health professionals who then need to listen to parents' concerns as well as work with them to appreciate the potential risks associated with their child's suicidality. This week's guest, Lynn O'Grady, is a community psychologist with an interest in the mental health of children, young people and families. She has previously worked with parents in the community sector as a school psychologist and a manager of the Kids Matter Project for the Australian Psychological Society. Lynn currently works in private practice with children, young people and families and is a registered supervisor of psychology interns. She is also the author of a book titled Keeping Our Kids Alive, Parenting a Suicidal Young Person. Stay tuned as Lynn joins us to highlight the ethical challenges facing mental health practitioners when working with children and young people in relation to suicide risk. Lynn will also provide examples of ways to help parents come to terms with their child's distress and empower them to be able to provide support. This includes ways to understanding their child's needs, facts about suicidality and how they can keep their child safe during times of distress. All right, Lynn O'Grady, thanks very much for joining me on the show. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here. No, it's a pleasure to have you. We've obviously had an association with you in our conferences over a few years now, but very much appreciate your support and your assistance throughout the time. But tell us, today we're here to talk about you and everything that you know about, probably not everything we can cover, but <laughs> as, much as, we we, yeah, <laughs> as much as we can cover in our time together, talking about parenting and behavioral challenges and also recognizing mental ill health conditions, perhaps in their kids as well, and some of the signs and symptoms of that. And then also touching on some of the digital tools as well, mm. some of the ones you recommend and, and maybe even not recommend, but... I'm keen to get into the conversation, but before we get into that, tell us, how did you get into psychology? I got into psychology because of my own experience as a parent, actually, when I look back. It'll do it to you, won't it? You kind of need all the help, (laughs) and most people don't then have a career as a psychologist that comes from that, but it was very much around that time, being a young mum with two girls at the time, and finding it really challenging. So I was was certainly young by today's standards, I guess, I wasn't that young, but it felt pretty isolating, and 
I didn't quite understand my kids that well. It's, it's kind of when I look back, I think I just don't quite get some of this. Different personalities, different, different ways of seeing things. And some of the innate things weren't there for me, I guess. How young were the kids when you made that? Was it like when they were just born? Is that when you well, started? Well, two, like, and, a half, that two and a half. One okay. was two and a half and one was a baby. So it was that, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, it was pretty hard. And it was very much that normal toddler sort of resisting sort of well finding their own voice was was part of that and finding power struggles was what i was finding and i remember thinking if i'm having these power struggles when this child is two and a half or three she was probably three what am i going to be like when you know when she's a teenager what's going to be like later so i was pretty worried about that and just finding it really hard and, and not enjoying as much as i thought that i would i suppose so i went along to a parenting group and from there it's kind of a bit of a a co-design or a lived experience kind of experience now is how we might frame it but they were very keen to have some people who were trained community members who were trained to facilitate parenting groups and so I became involved in that after having done the group myself and just enjoying the learning and making it made good sense to me that there were some things that I could do and understand children's behavior in some different ways understand development and just learn, learn some things. So not just sort of think that it should be something that you just, you know, or that you, what, what seems like it makes sense doesn't always work that well. You're probably in like that 0.1% of people that think, oh man, I've got to learn more about my kids so I can do a better job. But you actually went out and did it. And yeah, did a, yeah. a whole degree with it. And it? then it triggered off. It was probably an interest that was there, I think, that was always there in terms of wanting yeah. to do more study, perhaps looking at psychology. And then I kind of hit a point where I thought my oldest daughter then got to school and I thought, like, this is my time. If I don't kind of do this now, the university in Melbourne opened up down the road and I thought, this is, these are some you know, signals for me together. that this is my time to do it. So I'd been doing the parenting work a little bit, which I enjoyed, and I thought I need to, I need to have something more behind me as well. I felt like what I was doing wasn't, wasn't really enough. I needed to have something behind me. So enrolled in the psychology course and oh, yeah. there it was and I studied for 16 years to do that part-time oh, and to yeah I had a bit of a break at one stage and then I was on the brink of chucking it in I was doing my master's and my research wasn't going very well because I was meant to get 120 surveys of young people and I could only get 17 so <laughs> I thought this is not no. working very well what am I going to do and I was already doing my work as a provisional psychologist by that stage so technically to become a psychologist I just needed to keep doing what I was doing but on the brink of kind of not going back to complete it I heard myself saying on the phone to the university how do I come back so I couldn't quite let it go even though I didn't really need it so then I went back to my supervisor and said what am I going to do about my research it's not going to work and we turned it into a doctorate which gave me a bit more time and gave me a chance to reshape the whole thing so I mean okay. instead of doing surveys with young people I used a different method so I used photos so I used photo oh. voice where I gave them little digital cameras and they went away and took photos and then I use that as a way of communicating with them. And you hit your numbers with that? And, well, I could have smaller numbers because it was a qualitative study. Okay. So it was a deeper study. So it was a smaller study. So I only needed 10 or 12. And some of the cameras didn't come back. Some of them were lost in, the locker, in lockers at school or under the bed or somewhere. So I didn't get all of them back. But I was able to get enough qualitative, rich data, which, which changed the whole focus of the research. And it came back to families. So I was interested in sense of community in the neighbourhood with these young people. But it came back to family. I had pictures of family members and breakfast and pets, lots of pets, and bathrooms and bedrooms were the pictures, not the neighbourhood. 
Wow. So it reinforced that idea of the importance of parents, the importance of family. That's incredible. And it's incredible that after 16 years you're stuck with it. I mean, because that's a long time when you think about it. And I've done another three years since then in a Master of Suicidology, which I completed at the end of 2017. With the University of Melbourne? No, that was with Griffith University. Oh, wow. Online. Okay. So it was all online, three years part-time. And I only went there to graduate. And I went to the graduation at the end of that and then came home and sat there thinking, what am I going to do with this Master's now that I've done it? What am I going to do with it? So then I wrote a book. (laughs) <laughs> of course, because what else would, what you, else do would you do after doing 19 that's years? That's right, that's right. So study is an ongoing kind of journey, I suppose, for me, a big part of it. And I think something like psychology, you kind of have to keep learning and yeah. not, not think that you kind well, of it's forever changing, it. right? Yeah, yeah, and people complex. Yeah. For sure. What's your book called? Keeping Our Kids Alive, Parenting a Suicidal Young Person. Wow. Yeah, so it was published and it came out right at the start of the pandemic last year. Oof. So I didn't make it into bookshops because that was just impossible, yeah. but it is on Google Play, so it's an e-book as well. So. Okay, great. And, I mean, what a highly relevant topic to come out during that time. I want to touch on COVID and stuff, which I think we'll get into shortly, but if we go back to parenting, I mean, when before you have a child, you, you're researching, you're Googling, you're reading books, you're... You know, you get all these, you go to the classes to understand how the birthing works and then all of a sudden along comes the kid and then you're thinking, well, hang on, everything that I've learned, everything's contradicting each other. Everything was about the birthing process and now yeah. all of a sudden I'm at home with the kid, with my child and it's, yeah. where's the, where's the manual, where's <laughs> the manual going now? Thing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it is scary. And, and obviously for the most part, Parents want to do the best they can. Yeah, I think that's true. I think parents do want to do the best. And they're, they're basing it on their own experience of being a child and being parented. And, of course, some of that can be useful and helpful and some of it can be pretty unhelpful. So I remember sort of looking to what my parents had done and they'd been very caring, nurturing parents, but it didn't quite fit with who I was and what I wanted to be as a parent, but then I didn't quite know what else to do. So the whole discipline thing was, was a real challenge and the idea of smacking kids. And, yeah. and now we're, we're still struggling with that, I think. There are still you know, debates around that that happen, even though we know that smacking is, is really not helpful and really counterproductive. But that was kind of the model that I had, I suppose, and looking for something different was hard until I learnt the skills. And that's what we kind of have to do, I suppose, find alternatives. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like parenting seems to be the thing that you, I mean, you have an idea, but you don't sit down and define it. You don't sit down and say, oh, this is how we want to do it together. Mm. It's not something you proactively sit down and do. It's something that you are instinctively doing as you're going along Mm. with a couple of rules that you try and come up with. But ultimately they get thrown out the window at some point as well or changed or moulded or evolved as Mm. depending how strong-willed or stubborn your, your kid might be or or how, like, how much like a sleep or whatever it is that you've had as well. But, yeah. I mean, do you think more time and, and care it needs to be taken in intentionally setting up some sort of a – or even thinking about what sort of parent you want to be? Yeah, I think that would be really good. I think it's hard to do that because 
yeah. before the child is born, you are thinking, like you said, about all the, the birth and the, the first few months and getting through that and, and just finding your feet in that way. So I think it's hard to do that kind of pre-planning around what it's going to be like. And each stage is different and each child is different. So I think if I'd had my younger daughter earlier first, it might have been quite a different experience for me because she's she's a bit more like me. So she's she's kind of got a personality that I kind of get. And then over time, I've had to help her sort of think about some of the things that I would have liked to have been thinking about differently. But my older daughter has a very different personality to me and that was where it was so challenging. And now, of course, I see, you know, the great opportunities that was for me to learn and to kind of grow with her and to, to understand her. And I see the great strengths and capacities that they both have. But at that time, it was just something I just couldn't quite understand and just getting very frustrated and knowing that wasn't working and then had, had to actually go and get some help with that. But doing that beforehand would have been hard because you don't quite know what you're needing until you I guess yeah. it would have been hard to do that beforehand because it's, it's theory, I suppose, isn't it? It's rather than in the moment, what do I do? What do I need? But I think you also, like, you want to parent, I mean, you, you come up with a methodology of parenting and assume that that's, that's it for all kids, mm, right? Yeah. But what I think you're saying is that you also need to be able to, you can parent, it's okay to parent differently to some kids if they're different Yeah, I think they need different, I think they need yeah. different things and at different times. So you're trying to be fair and yeah. equitable. I think that that is pretty important and that whole question around favourite kids and stuff yeah. is, is who not want to be a favourite child. So I think you're managing all of that. But I do think that, that kids do need different different things at different times and there might be times when one needs more than the other or they do need some different different responses to the same kind of situation. It's, I mean, it's, it's complicated mm. being a parent yes. and yes. and challenging. I mean, because yeah. you want what's best for them. They obviously know that they, no matter what, that you're going to love them and care for them as much as anyone on earth will. Yeah. But there's still there's still that challenge that arises. So, tell us how have you seen in in the time that you've taken of studying this, have you seen change? Have you seen in kids' behaviour in their relationship with parents or in the yeah, behavioural patterns or anything? Has there been some shifts that yeah, you've noticed? I think there have been some changes that probably haven't been what I would have expected. I, I think now I'm working in private practice, so I had a 10-year period where I was doing project work and then at the end of 2019 decided I wanted to get back closer to the ground and, and work more closely with kids and families again. So I work in private practice and I... I had originally thought I'd work with children and families, but I also do some work with adults and young adults is a, a new kind of area for me. And I'm finding that young adults are finding it hard to be released from their parents and are still kind of trapped with their parents. So I think instead of parents learning how to gradually let go of their kids in adolescence and then into adulthood, letting them go, I think we've, we've parents have parents stuck way. with that. It's gone the other way, partly because kids are perhaps at home more. So navigating Longer. that, yeah, navigating that sort of transition to early adulthood is really difficult. And we often hear about resilience and kids' capacity to kind of look after themselves or have confidence in themselves. I, I think that is a problem for that even that adult, early adulthood. So it tells me that we haven't been making those steps along the way to be able to know where those boundaries are and to show warmth and support, but also let kids learn and develop and take some risks along the way, which feeds into what we're hearing at the moment around anxiety and perhaps COVID is just going to make that even harder, that we're more protective and 
taking less risk with our kids or letting our kids take less, less risks. So I think that's, that's a concern, that kids are not able to really develop in the ways that we would like them to. So there's that longer dependency on their parents, mm. but then there's also that tussle that you, you touched on there, which was, as a parent, how much do you want to tell them of what they're going to experience versus having to let sit back and let them experience yeah. to some degree yeah. to learn that resilience and to make some mistakes. Yeah. I mean, there's no... I mean, there's no right or wrong answer for this, no, though, is there? It's really, really hard, really hard. And I see it with parents all the time. And again, some kids are easier to parent and will go along with things and are pretty easygoing and don't put up too much of a fight. And other kids will just be doing it tougher for whatever reasons, personality, mental health issues coming in, whatever that might be. And for parents, it can be real, real struggle. And that's some of the, some of the kids, obviously, and parents that I see now. And it's, yeah, it's really sad to see that and really hard that parents can be trying really hard, but that communication is just broken down. And I think that whole thing, I remember when I was learning parenting groups, we used to talk about the power of control and influence and the, the distinction of, of that. And by the time kids are teenagers, the more you're trying to control them, the less influence you're likely to have. And that, that stayed with me a lot. And so you're kind of in this space of trying to help them to make good decisions and keep themselves safe so it's almost like working out what are the ground rules the basic things here that I can't let them do and that's often around safety and respect but then how can I have a bit of leeway here Mm. and work towards yes rather than no and the things that are definitely no you often can say no to with any age kid if it's really unsafe you're going to be no and you're going to be really clear but if you're not quite sure then kids are going to find ways to kind of break through that or they'll go to the partner they go to the partner or they try to talk to nan or someone to try and do that so you see all that kind of happening so parents and and adults around kids being on the same page is a really important thing and working towards yes as much as you can i think is really useful too and building in the safety nets that you need to but really trying to let let them make yeah. some of their own decisions and have the consequences as long as they're not not huge but if you're in a, in a control power struggle you're likely to lose it and yeah. then you might lose the opportunities for influence because you've just lost that communication and teenagers can do a lot of what they want without you and that's kind of hard to understand but if you sort of recognize that and then you see that kids can sneak out of home can be dressing and peering the way they want to when you're not around, can be doing all sorts of things that you can't actually control. Well, you want to really work on that influence and you want to think about how do I keep this relationship good enough and understand and listen and support them and be able to communicate my concerns with them and problem solve it rather than just try and control and send behaviours underground. So control and influence have an inverse relationship against each other. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So if you hold on to that, I think, in parenting years, that's pretty useful and you do it gradually. You don't just kind of wait until it's thrown upon you. You're doing it as it's appropriate along the way. So for little kids, it can be what's appropriate choices or and then over time and letting them forget their jumper or something and they're cold, we'll let them be cold and then talk about it later maybe. Like little things yeah. like that along the way that you kind of go, well, where's the lesson in here? The teachable moment kind of idea without a huge consequences, but just give them that sense of it. So really exploring that middle ground between the yes and the no, mm. how do we put some boundaries around it so we're in that grey zone where it's yep. you can do it, but here's the thing yep. parameters that need to be in place for this to happen. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we, we still know a lot about authoritative parenting styles is the most relevant and useful parenting style that still comes through in the literature. And that's been around since the 1960s when Diana Balmerand came up with those styles and it still holds up. So that is the limits and the boundaries that kids need to push up against. They need to have something to push against. Kids that don't have them will, will keep looking for them, but also with warmth. So it's warmth and support and, and some boundaries. So it's, it's finding that balance. And I think that's where that influence kind of comes in as well. And spending time together and hearing and listening and understanding. And that, that's one of the main messages, I think, in the book is around listening and understanding. And I see it all the time working with kids that I see things and listen to kids and talk about it. And then I see that their parents are not seeing that and that that's really quite sad to see that, that I can see things that parents are not seeing in these kids and trying to help bring that to light sometimes. Why aren't their parents seeing it? I mean, are they are they scrolling through Facey? Is it, are they just too busy doing well, their own? Are they, they working? Well, it can they... be busy. I think they also see the, the negative stuff. So by the time yeah. kids are coming to see me, often there's been a lot of, lot of stuff that they've been worried about or kids can say really hurtful things. Dads can find that really, really difficult. So sometimes dads can get caught up in the kids said this, it's really hurtful and why should I then give them any time or why should I give them, should I even kind of show them that respect when they've spoken like that? Sometimes mums get caught in the middle of that and being stereotypical there, but that is sometimes a pattern that I see. And obviously it's often mums that are coming to see me, bringing kids, that's still probably the case. Although I see some dads, but I think sometimes there can be that kind of hurt feelings and these kids hurt my feelings. So why should I give them anything from there? And sometimes it's a bit of a hard conversation around, well, we're the adults here. And yes, yeah. they might have said something that's hurtful, but what's that about? And all behaviour has some kind of meaning. So how do we understand what's underneath it? What's going on underneath? What's that really about? Is it common to, with parents bringing their kids, saying that, hey, something's going wrong, something's happening, but more often than not, it's the parent that needs a bit well, of a, awareness, a, education? Yeah, it's hard to tease it all out. I mean, okay. some kids do have kind of lots of problems going on with school, with friends, yeah. and parents can just be feeling lost with all of that. And okay. so there can be learning problems. And I guess that's the job is to try and tease out what's actually going on. And for some teenagers, of course, you're seeing them without the parents. So parents don't always have to give permission and or might give permission, but then you're seeing, seeing the young person. And I prefer to work with the parent there. Yeah. But if it's the choice of seeing the young person and not the parent, and then or the young person not coming at all, well, then there's a bit of an ethical kind of issue there for me in terms of, well, the young person's wanting to engage. I do that, but then how do I kind of bring the parent in or how do I encourage that relationship? So in private practice, that's pretty challenging mm. because the, the young person or the child is a client under Medicare, say, and so you don't get sessions with the parent sort of separately to that. So you've yeah. got to have the, have the, the young person there. And then navigating that space can be really tricky. And sometimes the session, best sessions can be where you've got the parents and you're modelling a little bit about how to ask and you're bringing that voice to life. So you're actually enabling the parent to see something that they haven't seen because they've been so caught up in the worries. Mm. So you can sometimes do that work. But sometimes it's really clear that keeping the parent there is silencing the young person. And that's, that's not great. So then you think, well, what am I doing here that's helping? But then if the relationship is not great with a parent, how do I, how do I navigate that space? And that's really challenging as a professional, particularly when I'm so interested in parents and supporting parents. It's, it's really challenging. What is the research saying around all this at the moment? 
Well, I think it's there's probably not a heap of research around parenting. We know the Royal Children's Hospital does some great work with their child health polls and they look at parenting and ask parents about this. Some of the research they've done showed that parents are not great at recognising mental health difficulties in younger kids particularly, a little bit better with older kids, but also not knowing where to go to get help. So I think that means that parents are not necessarily getting the help until down the track when things are perhaps more severe than what they could be getting help with. They're not necessarily yeah. recognising it earlier. So that's some of the research that's there. There's a lot of information for parents, but it doesn't mean that they're actually getting it or knowing what to do with it. So there's there's sort of a lack of that kind of So support. much pressure just to mm. try and, whether it's having your jobs, getting into sports, yeah. all these things or, yeah. but then, yeah, to get them to spend some time working on the muscle to yeah. be a better parent. Yeah. Probably keeps getting pushed to the back of the line of priorities. Yeah. Um, and then how we frame that. So there was some work that the Parenting Research Centre did a couple of years ago as well around how health professionals communicate with parents and talking about parenting is perhaps not the best way of communicating. It's more, it might be more useful to be talking about how to support your child or here's some things around child development or these are things that, that you can do with your with a focus on the child rather than you as a parent. So that's an interesting take on it. So if you think about parenting programs, it's very much about you developing as a parent, which I kind of feel like is where the need is, but that doesn't necessarily get across to parents because parents can often be feeling like it's it's a child, it's not it's not me. Child's so fault, in, yeah. yeah, in that that kind of difficult space. Yeah, and there needs to be for them to take responsibility. There needs to be that awareness, doesn't there? Yeah. But they're not going to get that unless they actually actively yeah or think about it and remove from the situation. Yeah. Which wouldn't be too common. I would, I would yeah, think. they're kind of stuck in it and, yeah. and worried, often very worried. Sometimes having their own mental health difficulties as well. So I'm always talking to parents about getting their own mental health treatment plan. Yeah. And getting their own support so that they've got some support. And then if, if we can get the psychologists even talking to each other, that might be a way through. But that's it's quite hard to get that actually happening. So our systems are not really set up particularly yeah. well at the moment to do this, hopefully with reforms and the focus that we're, we're sort of looking at, that there'll be some change around that because you can't really see kids and adolescents without the parents around them and families in whatever the way that is and broader schools and communities as well. We kind of have to think about it in that way, I think, which we don't at the moment. We think about them individually. Do you think we're far away from that? I think we are a fair way away from it. I think so. How's I think Victoria doing with it? Well, Victoria's got the Royal Commission with a whole lot of recommendations and a yeah. preventative focus, which hopefully will, will start to kick in. That's probably what we do need. We can't just keep waiting until we're at the end of the yeah. people in big trouble. We need to act a bit more early, for sure, and probably with earlier kids. If I think about my my journey, it, starting there, was and yes, it was extreme, but, but it was still challenging over the years as a, as a parent. It was still very challenging at times, even with the knowledge I had. And sometimes as health professionals, we have knowledge which makes us even, it's not always as helpful as we might think it is. Yeah. You kind of know stuff that you, you kind of then might impact on you, yeah, <laughs> worrying you more. The more point. you know, sometimes it's not always Doesn't that help. helpful. Yeah. How do parents better understand the signals that perhaps something may not be right from a mental health perspective of their child? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's knowing your child and recognising that something is shifting. And I think that can be that understanding behaviour. So not reacting to something that's, that's happened, but thinking what's this actually about 
and trying to find What's ways the underlying to open it issue? Up. Yeah, I think if we understand all behaviour has meaning, if we kind of think about it from that point of view, and that gets tricky because at different stages, kids are going through different things. So, a toddler starting to act out the preteen kind of starting to get that teenage attitude and then of course teenagers what does it look like so you've, you've got that that's always been the case so you've got these sort of stages that kids are going through but the risk and often parents have an instinctual kind of sense that something's not right that and if they are connecting with other parents and seeing other kids if they're connected with other families and get to see this is something that's happening to my child but not necessarily happening to other kids talking to schools early childhood People in early childhood years take, speak to teachers early, I think, is really, really key to that. And just getting a sense, is, is this happening outside of the home as well? These sorts of worries that I'm seeing kind of part of this age group. So getting some information and talking early and just checking it out, I think, is useful. But then taking some time. So even, and that's where you get trapped, I think, if you're thinking about behaviour, sort of a negative behaviour, we don't want to reward it. Whereas if you're seeing behaviour that's not great, to take some time to actually connect with that child and go and go for a walk or go somewhere or take them out and get an ice cream or get some Maccas or something to build a connection, then you're trying to understand what's going on and checking out what's happening, what's going on and be clear about what I've noticed this and what do you think that's about and really kids can actually really tell you a lot of stuff if you if you ask the questions in a way that's that you're not going to judge them you're not going to criticize them or punish them they'll actually open up and, and they often have some insights that we don't even realize and that's what I get to see that's that's what I often see when I'm working with kids I often get to hear these insights and then trying to find ways to to share them with parents and I just wish that parents were able to get them or were able to see them but parents get caught in that that control thing again well I can't reward that that behavior if I take them out when they've behaved like that what will the other kids think or I'm giving them mixed messages but I, I think there are ways of, of kind of just working together that partnering in this together how are we going to help each other and how do we have these conversations and talk about the behaviour if it's not appropriate, talk about it, but yeah. really try and understand it. Effective questioning and listening. Curious questioning, I think. Curious questioning, yeah. And curious, like what's going on? I think that's a really useful thing. And then listening without jumping in. And I have had situations with parents where I just have to kind of <laughs> say so to them, let's tempting. just listen to each other, <laughs> let's listen. And I have, yeah, I have sometimes been... It, you know, I felt that it's been okay to do that. I've sometimes been pretty clear with parents when I've had them in that space to be able to say, look, just just look at look at the child's body language even. Sometimes parents are not even noticing that when the child is silenced or the child is kind of, their body language is shifting and the parents are off on their tangents and I've sometimes just stopped them and said, just, just look at what's going on here. Mm. And that can be pretty powerful. It can be pretty confronting and I've got to be really careful and I wouldn't do it all the time, but it's pretty, yeah, it can help when parents can just stop and mm. just say, listen, and use the wisdom of the child sometimes that we don't always appreciate. We probably underestimate what kids know about themselves. If we think about them as the expert in their own lives, they know what's going on. They don't always have the words to express it. They don't always have the, the ways that we can understand, but we just have to try to get to that and work with them with that. So I see that's often what my job is. And with the younger kids, I can do that more with the parents. The teenagers, it's much more challenging because yeah, that sometimes that relationship is broken down more. So it's hard and you feel like you need a family therapy kind of model rather than a, yeah. the model that I have, which doesn't feel like it's doing enough sometimes. It's a hard thing to do when I mean, because listening to it, it makes complete sense. Mm. When you're in the moment and yeah. your just natural instinct, instinct is to just 
yeah. tell them an answer or say, hang on, well, hang on, that's not what I meant. This is it. And, but you're right, yeah. if you'd actually just shut up and listen, yeah. uh, you can probably learn a hell of a lot more yeah. than what you think you're teaching them. Yep, yep. So I think parents getting support for themselves is really important. And there are things like reach out parent forums or information raising children network is a really useful website just to look at videos and things that they have and just try to give yourself a bit of distance and a bit of space and maybe finding some people that some allies that are going through the same thing but again people are busy the neighborhood idea of you know chatting to your neighbor over the fence that, that might have happened back in the 50s and 60s when communities were a little bit more solid perhaps in that way maybe they're, they're, not perfect by any means, but at least there might have been a bit more of that social support and that, that networking that happened compared to now where people are really busy. And COVID helped us to slow down a little bit. And some of the research from the Royal Children's Hospital that they did around COVID and the Australian Institute of Family Studies as well showed that the parents were connecting with their kids in many cases. We know also they're at the other extreme where families were in great conflict and protective concerns arose. So that's certainly a different experience. But for some parents, it gave them a chance to slow down and be with their kids mm. and connect in ways that they hadn't before and to really appreciate what was going on for kids and seeing what was happening. So that COVID's given us some opportunities to reflect and stop. So but now we're getting busier again. We get perhaps losing yeah. that and losing sight of that again. We're perhaps all doing that. Actually, you know what? I agree with that. I think there's, for some people, that connection, there was nothing else you could do except mm. be at home or go yep. for walks with your kids or yep. find an excuse to go exercising. Yes, whether it was in your one hour a day. Fishing or whatever you wanted to do. Yeah. just to. Yeah. But, but go for a walk with your kids because you had to do it together. Yeah. I mean, it was just interesting that there's probably two sides of the coin on that, isn't mm, there? So there's absolutely. the ones that had actually improved their relationship and I'm yeah. sure there's ones where it went the other way. Yeah. And I want to talk about that shortly. But before we do, the mental health professionals, mm. what's their role in helping to explore the most effective way they can help assist parents Yeah. in recognising early signs? I think there's there's different roles and I, I feel like my role um, working individually goes against my philosophy of, you know, doing broader. I'm a community psychologist is my training and yet I'm working in this very narrow way, <laughs> one client after another client. So I feel like I'm in this constant tussle. So writing the book was part of that. I have a Facebook page that goes with the book, which is all very positive. So it's a Facebook page for parents and I... I put information on there uh, that's useful for parents that's not about suicide risk at all it's it's more proactive work so i think we all have roles to play in this and there are some mental health professionals that are doing this work really well and and people can follow them so justin coulson is a psychologist that does fabulous work and and is was part of our conference last year. He's so amazing. Yeah, so he does great work and has a lot of information for families and a lot of that proactive, positive work. And, yeah. and he's a father with six kids, six I think. Girls. Six girls. So yeah. he's living it, absolutely he's, living it day by day. So uh, he draws on that a lot. So he's a good example of what we can do. Otherwise, I think it is being mindful of giving parents the space and time, I suppose, that, that we can. And again, as having a system ideally where we can, we can really support parent voice in all of this as well, what it's like for parents and how as a community we see parents in there. I think schools can probably be doing a better job with parents really and 20 years ago I was doing work in schools and trying to find ways and doing parenting groups that were offered in schools and things like that. So parent groups now can be online, whether that's the same, you know, we've kind of 
we're at a hybrid conference. We're all enjoying being yeah. face-to-face with people. So parents, certainly when I was doing parenting groups in the 90s, that, that connection between them, I often felt that it wasn't just the skills that they were learning, but that sense of not being alone and being able to voice concerns. So I think listening to parents is really important. Mm. But then in our current ways of working, certainly in a private practice setting, it's, it's not set up for that, that I'm kind of having to juggle the young person or the child with the parents' needs and that can feel like their needs are not necessarily being met unless they go out and seek it for themselves. So I think some models that do support parents better would be useful. Parents as a couple is probably important if, if they're partnered. And yeah. of course we, we see some of the kids I see, there's, there's challenges in terms of parents and separation and having to navigate that space. So there's lots of kind of ethical minefields we're walking in in terms of how, how much we share, younger kids particularly, how much is shared with parents who are not living with, with the kids. And yeah, so it's, it's complex work. There's a whole lot of different things that are happening. And I'm talking about people that are coming to see me who are probably doing pretty well in mm. terms of coming to see someone in private practice compared to families who are really struggling and perhaps trying to access public health services. So it's, it's challenging and probably needs more thinking through it at that kind of bigger system level, I think, for sure. Where do you think we're at with stigma as as it relates to help seeking? I mean, for coming to get help off professionals, Yeah. whether it's kids or parents, do you think in in your time where we're at now, do you think it's getting better? Do you feel there's less stigma around it? Yeah, I think there's, there's probably less stigma and people talking about it way more. Certainly people are talking about anxiety much more now. When I kind of think about 10 years ago, the literacy around it is much higher, whether or not people understand it like anxiety we talk about as though it's we're talking about anxiety disorders rather than just feeling anxious or feeling nervous as a normal thing that happens particularly around COVID at the moment that everyone's feeling a bit more anxious doesn't mean we've all got anxiety disorders so I think there's talk about it but not necessarily fully understanding it one one of the things I'm seeing with kids is that sometimes the kids that are coming to see me with their own issues are also helping their friends with issues mm. and being seen as a helper but don't then want to share that with their with their friends so that's an interesting phenomenon I think that's starting to come up so there's sort of a they don't want to share a, their own that's experience. right they want to be the helper so if uh. they're the helper they don't uh. then want to be sharing so it's like their friends see them as someone that understands but then they don't then see that they can get support from their friends so that gets really tricky when you're sort of trying to work out who are your supports and who are people that can help you. For This is for adolescents and yeah. they say that they don't tell their friends. So they've got this kind of secret kind of life that they're, they're there because they're seeing themselves as a helper. So that's an interesting thing in terms of breaking down stigma of assumption that we're all talking about mental health and if we've got a problem we can talk about it or young people can talk about it when for some of them it's they don't want to talk about their own but they want to be seen as a as a helper and then the burdening of that sometimes as well that for some of them their friends are reaching out to them and not necessarily reaching out to adults so then the boundaries around when should you talk to an adult about this or you know you can't really just help each other if things are getting serious so I, I think it's we're in a time of change with that, I think, and, but probably a bit of confusion around it. And raising it through the pandemic has meant that there's a lot more conversation about it, but not necessarily people really understanding it in the way that's probably helpful. That makes sense. It makes sense. I, I, I guess where something I'm thinking about right now is, that, does it seem like there's a fine line between, especially if we're talking about adolescence, where it's mainstream behavior so they get withdrawn mm. they disengage at home they're more comfortable with their peer group 
versus there's a mental ill health challenge that's happening mm. here. And yep. how, how do you distinguish between the signs of what's normal for that time yeah. of life and yeah. what might be anxiety or depression, but they're not opening up? And yeah, you have that's that really worry. tricky because kids do want to spend more time. Part of being an adolescent that we've all probably been through is a need for privacy and not being with your parents all the time. And so that I remember that was an issue in the 90s as well. Parents, where was that line? And then it was a lot of worry around drug use and the behaviour is it because they're on drugs. I remember that was a big issue at the moment, which doesn't seem to be quite quite such an issue that we talk about in the same way. Maybe we've, we've sort of got better understandings around that. But that behaviour change that happens as part of adolescence is, is really hard to then say, well, at what point is that, is that a problem? Mm. And, of course, with technology as well, kids are actually connecting and getting their friendships online as well, which brings its own support but also its own challenges. So, and parents yeah. can be really disconnected from that as well. So I, I think it's a really hard hard thing for parents to know but I think it is looking for those opportunities to connect in and to be be checking and trying to monitor and I think basic things like eating and sleeping are really important and kids getting out are they connected to school like I think there's all of those signs that you can look for and as I said talking to teachers around what they what they see as well and even in my work I like to check in with schools if if kids are sort of struggling I like to check with schools and just to get that sense of what's happening at school because I'm really aware that I get a bit of an insight in an office for a 50 minutes hour session and parents are getting a particular perspective so for me it's really useful to talk to schools and just to to see what schools say and often they're talking about things very differently so I think that's one of the indicators if you've got school worried or other people outside of the family worried and noticing you've got disengagement from the interests that that can be concerns not just what you're seeing at home so gathering all that information I think being a bit of a detective around what else can where can we get this other information who else is noticing this and talking to other parents or the forums to sort of check in with is this normal for a young person this age so getting more information but then trying really hard to open up the communication trying to talk with with the young person and just that listening again i think is a key i think it makes sense what you just said where you actually go out and you engage different parts of the community of the life of the kid to get a better understanding because you're right you're probably only seeing x amount of when you when they're there in front of you but if you can have the resources to do a bit of digging and and more exploring around Mm. hang on how are they behaving in other areas because it might just be at home yeah but at school they're fine with their peer group, their yep. sporting group, they're fine. Yeah, yep. and if it is at home, well, then you start thinking about well, what what's going on here. Are they needing something that, that we're not providing? Is it part of that kind of breaking away from us that they are spending more time with their friends? Finding out what are they doing? So technology is not just one thing. It's, it can be games, it can be social yeah. media, it can be helpful, it can be really unhelpful. It can be the, the thinspo stuff on Instagram. We're looking at thin people looking looking at that getting ideas around restricted eating and things so it can be there's extremes in there and it can be quite helpful and healthy but it can also be risky so checking that out asking some questions about it what are your thoughts on the technology with kids i mean is there an age that's too young i mean is there the conversation you constantly hear in parent groups is what age are they going to get a phone? Yeah. And allow their own <gasps> social media accounts. And yeah. Because you can see on one hand how you don't want to get left behind. Yeah. But the same, and you can see it as a tool for connection at certain times. Yeah. But 
you also see if everyone's heads down in the phone when you're at home or they're, yep. they're staying up really late in their room and they're on it. I mean, I can see how you can go all one way or all the all that. And, yeah. I, and I guess either aisle is not the answer, yeah. but... I think either extreme is not good. Yeah. I, th I think we've got to face that it, it's here. So I, I get worried when I see and hear people advocating for banning stuff. I don't think we've ever had a circumstance where banning anything from kids has, has been that helpful. I, I think we've got to find ways to, to kind of work with it. I think it's worrying when parents don't have enough information. I think parents mm -hmm. giving kids iPad that's connected to an internet, not realising that that yeah. can mean that all sorts of people can be accessing that inappropriately. I think parents not knowing that is a real worry. The eSafety Commissioner really keeping in touch with them and the information they're providing, I think is really, really useful. And they do provide a lot of guidance and they really catch on with the latest things that are coming out. I remember early on they were picking up on TikTok and really getting people to think about what this means and how your kids might be using it. So I, I think they really kind of keep ahead of it. So I think that's really good and then asking kids how they're using it. But I think, it, it, like with anything, I think it's hard to put an age to things. So I know Facebook yeah. and some other sort of apps and things, it's 13 and up. But of course, not all 13s are the same. There might be some kids that are younger than 13 that could handle it really, very well, and some 13 and 14-year-olds that couldn't handle it well. So I think talking to kids about what's the limits on things and why that's there is really important. And probably using that as one of the boundaries as much as you can to get as close as that to you can, I think would be important for parents. But each situation is different as well. So some parents in primary school might want to give their kids phones if they're walking home and that might be, yeah. might be an appropriate thing to do, to be giving kids a bit of independence. But then how do you navigate that? And how do you kind of be realistic about what kids can be expected to, to really understand and manage themselves? So sort of thinking about what's realistic for them and how do we put some boundaries around it? I think boundaries are important that you then gradually releasing, that you're kind of adjusting as time goes on and getting support from, from schools as much as possible. And schools are kind of handling this probably better as time goes on, they're kind of able to support parents because they've got to navigate it as well. So being consistent with the school around what are the rules around this that we can be reinforcing and be consistent is important, I think, for kids. But keeping up with it, knowing the risks, having conversations around it, I think is really important. And looking at our own modelling as well. So we're all on phones. You know, yeah. Adults are on phones. I've got my phone beside my bed and get yeah. trapped on Facebook until midnight, some nights, going, what am I doing? So, And I'm really aware of that. No sleep hygiene, you've got to put your phone away. But, but we all get trapped in it. So if you're a parent and you're always on your phone, kids do complain about that sometimes. Yeah. Parents are always on their phone. So it's no, and kids always have been able to pick up on what you say and what you do as a parent. So if you're on your phone, you're saying to kids, get off your phone and yeah, you're on your phone, you're going to lose that and you lose credibility yeah. and then you can't, yeah, that influence is being lost again. And one of the other things I find is that, that houses don't have home phones often and yet we might have kids helpline as one of the sources of support. So when I do safety planning with kids and you're talking about who can you talk to if you're upset, who are the people, ideally they've got people they can talk to and talk to parents, but that's not always the case. So you want kids helpline or lifeline there as another source of support. And some of them say, but my phone's taken off me. Yeah. I can't use that. So then I kind of get a bit stuck with that because it's often nighttime when the kids are struggling with this stuff and they can't ring kids' helpline. So there's all of these challenges that you just have to try to work out. How do you, how do you navigate it? And it's not easy, I think. And hopefully over time, kids will get better and adults will get better at supporting kids with this because it's obviously part of life and proved to be pretty helpful 
during the pandemic, but probably not enough. Kids were rushing to get back to school to see their friends. So the technology wasn't enough to sustain them with their social connections. So that's good for us to remember as well, that it's probably not the only way of connecting and supporting kids to have some time off devices too. I wonder how how do you support them, like the ThinSpo stuff? I mean, how do you get them to, because I mean, they're getting all this stuff in in front of them and they make their own mind, their their own connection as to more meaning to what they're seeing Mm. and actions as a result of that or number of likes or not, 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 no likes or whatever it is and and comments and bullying and stuff like that. Is it a matter of sitting there and helping interpret the meaning of these things with them or is it just letting them have a go and then trying to notice if if they're okay or not? I I think the more early we can have conversations, the better and name some of that stuff I think is important. Again, parents modelling around that stuff is one of the things that comes through. So include them in Mothers who have dieted, for example. comments people make good intentioned maybe around being healthier or losing a bit of weight that kids take on and then that becomes extreme particularly if they're not feeling good about themselves they're going through all of these changes with puberty it's the recipe but sometimes it does come back to those basic when i'm exploring eating restricted eating with kids sometimes it comes back to those messages that they've had in the past boys and girls about how people have said to them that they needed to lose some weight. And might have been grandparents, might have been parents, might have been friends, but, but often it's adults. So we can underestimate the power of what we're saying or the messages that for some kids might go water off a duck's back, but for others they take it on. It becomes who, who they are and that sense of self-worth, self-esteem is impacted. Some kids are more vulnerable to that. And so then before you know it, you know, and then they're not feeling great bit of anxiety kicking in so they don't eat they gradually stop eating that gives them a sense of control if there's power struggles not eating is a great way to take control because no one can actually force you to eat mm. if they force you to eat then you can go and vomit later like it's yeah. that's the kind of stuff we're seeing and hearing about at the moment which is pretty alarming i think it's getting worse is it I think so. It was one of the things that came out of COVID was the eating disorders, people, the kids with restricted eating turning up at emergency departments. And yeah, that was one of the things. Some of them were really very unwell and needed to be hospitalised. So that's something that we're certainly hearing about and something that I'm seeing that that pattern and and suicidal thoughts and self-harming in there as well. So suicidal thoughts in kids are way more common than we would be thinking which is quite sad to be thinking about, but it's there. And some of the kids that I'm seeing in their teenage years, but when I asked them when they first had thoughts about suicide and dying, some of them have had it for years. So we're actually talking about chronic suicidal thoughts in teenagers. Wow. Which is kind of alarming, I think, for our society. This was alarming, Lynn, before COVID came along. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, and it wasn't getting better before COVID came along. Yeah, that's right. So the impact that COVID has had eating disorders, suicidal ideation, mm. self-harm. Yeah. Well, why do you think, um, do you th- obviously locking people up inside uh, and restricting social yep. gatherings and stuff like that isn't good for people, but yep. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on the COVID and the impact that it's had on kids that you've seen. Yeah, I think it's there's it, a lot of variety in there, as we've talked about. So for some kids, they probably doing okay like anything you've got you know different groups that are perhaps doing okay i work in um i I do some work in the outer western suburbs of melbourne with mostly supervision or or 
kind of peer consultation with people who are working in schools and sometimes it's the poverty or the disengagement from school because that period of time meant that they, they just couldn't keep up with with what was going on and the home learning stuff. So the disengagement from that was was big part of that. And then I also do some work in, a, in private practice on the other side of Melbourne where kids are going to some of the Melbourne's top private schools. And so those pressures were around perfectionism and doing the work properly and being able to upload their work onto these, you know, the kind of really good, well-equipped systems for them to do their work. So you've got those extremes that I, I kind of see and, and hear about in my work. So I think there's a lot of variety there. I think child protection is still catching up with mm. what was happening and certainly some of the some of the people that I'm, I'm sort of supervising, uh, you know, first few weeks of returning back to school in Melbourne, that was what they were doing, was child protection, following up on things once kids were back at school. So there was that period of time when there wasn't any monitoring of, of kids and families and mm. schools provide that support. So I think schools provide that support and structure and routine and safety net for kids. And then I think you've got other kids that are just happy to be back at school. I, I had thought logically, and again, this is why we have to keep challenging our assumptions, because I had thought we'll have this school refusal, always been an element of school refusal. We're going to have how kids going to ever want to come back to school. Yeah. That's not what I'm hearing a lot about from a lot of kids is that they're actually keen to get back to school for that support and for that social connection with their friends because they really miss their friends and that's mm. coming through in some of the research as well they want to be with their friends in a very real way and they want to be back at school so there's there's a whole range of different experiences i've certainly worked with some kids who feel like that gap that gap year it's like a gap year so now they're facing vce but they still feel like they're in year nine so that preparation and that transition so kids in transition points i think did a much more tough it was yeah. much harder and, and so kids that were went into the first year of school and now missed a lot of that and now developmentally again some of them pick it up but some of them that were already perhaps struggling can be finding that difficult in those early years and then kids in that secondary primary to secondary school not necessarily having that preparation that 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 senior year of primary school gives you to prepare a lot of it is around preparing to go into secondary school so those kids can be doing it tough as well but then those senior kids can be be doing it and then the transition into in, out of yeah, school into uni as well so i think you've got a whole lot of different yeah. that we don't really understand yet and we're still in it like yeah. there's still there's still anxiety around are we going to go into lockdown again and that still is happening from time to time so there's still that uncertainty as well you've spoken about the impact of COVID on kids what about parents yeah i think it's been tough for parents i think and again, some parents, perhaps their work, or some adults I see, their work is unstable and, and they've lost work, had JobKeeper that's just ending, so we haven't yet seen the aftermath of that. Parents working at home, the pressures of, you know, changing, trying to teach kids. kids was pretty tough. <laughs> and then great relief at getting kids back to school. But their own anxieties, parents have got their own anxieties around COVID and just anxious themselves and how that then flows on to kids. I think there's lots of pressures, but probably great relief now. So hopefully parents are really appreciative of schools and, and teachers. Whole new and level of appreciation yeah, for teachers. really thankful for <laughs> teachers and what they do. But maybe there was, again, some, some fractures that started to happen or the other extreme that connected and can appreciate their kids in some different ways now. But this sense of getting back to, to normal and seeing and witnessing their kids' distress, I think is hard for parents as well, seeing their kids struggling. That's something that I sometimes have parents talking about. Yeah, struggling to get back into school. And just and missing their friends and yeah. birthday parties. Birthday parties is a really big one. Kids missing birthday parties or not being able to have one or, you know, planning for one, but then it couldn't happen. 
all of those things are kind of sad to see. Do you feel like we'll see a bit more of uh, an impact in Melbourne where, I mean, the extended lockdown period was... Yeah, I think so. Amazing, like the, how long that was, yeah. 120 was months, days. Yeah, like yeah. Was it was, and even as health professionals working at that time was really tough and I, I was aware of myself and riding this wave and so the novelty to start with and this kind of, oh, it's, you know, you don't have to go out so much, you can it's stay different. home, yeah. you, can, you can work in a different way and things were quiet for a while and it was a kind of a different different sort of thing and I was getting groceries and my dad was picking it up and he was staying home so I was kind of keeping him safe and then over time he got sick of that, he wanted to go out. And just all these different different stages. And then I remember that novelty kind of wearing off pretty quickly. And then I remember some real dips and that, that kind of watching the news every day to see what the numbers were. Yeah. And that hypervigilance that, that you got even as a, as a health professional just in your own experience of that, that this watching the numbers and waiting to see and then that dip and that relief and then waiting and waiting. And, and I think that whole sense of Australia being together to start with, we're all in this together and everyone's going through it and we we're seeing it was happening around the world. So there was that sense of it. But then when Victoria was in lockdown and the rest of the country wasn't and Victoria was seen quite differently there was this real sense of I don't know exile in a way so you were sort of stuck with that as well Punished, feeling, yeah. yeah feeling really isolated from the rest of Australia and it was yeah so it was these waves that you were riding and I remember at one stage feeling like this is just never going to end like how's it how's it going to end and I was going out and still seeing people so I've continued to do face to face during that time with masks on and did some telehealth but tend to give people a choice of whether they came in and for some people they wanted to come in because it was the only time they had out of their house so for some adults that I was seeing but probably some families it was their outing for the week when they would come to see me so that it was pretty interesting that for some people it was coming out was important to them. Yeah. Yeah, so it was very I couldn't strange. imagine, couldn't imagine what that would have been like. I, I mean, just uh, that would have been so tough to be down there in Victoria yeah. and Melbourne yep. just waiting for those figures each day to see and hope it was going to go down. And, yeah, and yeah. But, I mean, as we're trying to come out of this and we seem, it feels like we're doing better but mm. there's still the chance, like you said, that yep. at any point in time lockdowns can happen, which we've seen yep. still. Yeah, there's still a sense of uncertainty. And I think the end of the year, people were feeling like, well, next year will be a better year, like 2020 is a write-off and yeah. 2021 will be better. But then here we are into 2021, yeah. still some lockdowns, vaccination is there, but struggling, struggling, getting the numbers, seeing other countries that are going yeah. into their fourth wave and going to lockdown again other countries coming out with, with the risks around that so i and many people they've got family overseas so even some of the yeah. kids i was seeing some of the anxiety was around them watching the news and seeing families overseas and and parents not necessarily picking up on that as well which is that importance of asking the curious questions and the listening as well or understanding this you know this child's getting upset after dinner what's going on and it's because the news is on and it's got family from overseas you know we know uh, our families overseas that that's kind of one example of that so there was yeah there's lots of those things and the uncertainty does continue into this year Lynn what are some as we go to online evidence-based programs that are available for people to access what are some of the big ones that you think would be effective and, and be really constructive for people to get yeah, into? Yeah, I think the, there's the EMH PRAC resource, yep. which I, I print out. They have a really good PDF 
document for adults and for, for young people, which I just have in my office all the time and give that handout to people. So for families, I guess, if, if you've got young kids, Smiling Mind is a really good mm -hmm. resource and, and I've been hearing that that's been updated and there's some new resources for families, so that, that sounds really good. The Brave program is another one that's evidence-based around anxiety for kids and has different ages and has some resources for parents as well. So there are certainly digital programs that are there. Bite Back is one that I've had some good success with teenagers using and sometimes I might do that in a session they have like a little personality quiz that kids can do and they quite like that so I then get that the findings from that it comes up with a little description of you and who you are and email it to them and get them onto that and encourage them to share that with parents so I think there's a real place for them to share that kind of thing with parents as well mm -hmm. so they're they're ones for kids there's there's others for adults so I think the EMH prac is, is a really good resource just to look at that website but also that page they just have this sort of two-page document that is really useful to be able to look at that. And there's the Head to Health, of course, the government website that you can search for, but it sort of has more, so it takes a bit more effort to kind of find them, whereas the EMH PRAC document does just sort of look at what are the resources that are there for adults and for young people. Yeah, fantastic. Lynn, what else is there? Is there anything else that we've forgotten to talk about or that I haven't asked you yet? I mean, it's been really amazing to hear what you've been up to and, and everything that we've spoken about as it relates to parenting and, and mental health of our kids. And I mean, the impact that this can have on their, the rest of their lifetime, if not mm. picked up early. I mean, we can really, we have a great opportunity to identify it yeah. as early as possible and try and get help. But yeah. is there anything that I haven't asked that I should have asked or anything you want to share with us? Well, I suppose the other, the other stuff around suicide prevention yes. is, is one of those things so I'd love to talk about that yeah so in the book I sort of frame it in two parts so the first part is parenting and adolescent development what we know and sort of setting the scene and then the second part is around what you do if you're worried and so safety planning is really important and the more we can help people understand that the better that will be. So we heard that in, during COVID, lots of kids were going to emergency departments and that, that that has increased. And so, but then they often get there and then they get sent home again. But then what do you do? And so they're sort of assessed at the time, but then they go home, but they've still got these, these thoughts have happened or these worries have happened. So the safety planning is our best way of kind of helping. So it's recognising the signs and then all the steps that you can do to distract yourself, to soothe yourself, to seek support, change the environment, keep the environment safe. And parents can really do that and then help seek extra help if needed. So I think parents can do a lot around that and, and mental health professionals can really help parents to understand that as well. So it's empowering kids to recognise what are the signs, when are, when are they coming, when are thoughts about self-harm or, or suicide risk coming, and then what are the things that we can do. So empowering people to do that and understanding that the thoughts are coming to tell us something. Because so, I think what can happen with suicide risk is as health professionals as well, we get into that risk worry around that and so we get into risk assessments which disengages typically and that's what yeah. the evidence is starting to show that any lived experience that you read reports that you read from people they say the minute you know the checklist comes yeah. out and you're asking all these questions which you feel obliged to do but if you do it in that kind of checklist way you've just disengaged the person and so you, and you lose can be doing some harm. You, yeah, yeah not, we're actually doing harm in that. Yeah. But at the same time, we're trying to be protective and trying to, and often feeling quite panicky inside. So I think we've got to do some more work around understanding that yeah. there's certainly a risk and we worry about it, but the thoughts themselves are pretty common. And like I said before, some kids can have this chronic 
thinking for quite a long time and have been kind of living with it for a long time, you find out about it and suddenly you're panicked, but they've actually been surviving in some ways for quite a long period of time. So how do we tap into that and then try to make things better for them so the thoughts then don't have such a place because they're getting some support and they're getting heard. They don't need to have, the thoughts don't then have such a place to, to be coming. With regards to suicide, I mean, it, the stats keep getting worse. It seems to be, or they're not getting better anyway. Yeah. Do you think, even prior to COVID coming along, where do you think we're missing with it all? Because we're throwing more money at it, more mm. resources are going into it. Yeah. But yet, where do you, what do you think is happening? Yeah, it's so difficult. And it's interesting because people, we're hearing about more people going to emergency around suicide risk, but the stats that we have to date haven't shown more death by suicide. So that was always the worry during COVID that we're going to have more deaths by suicide. The deaths are way too high already and, and have been not reducing enough. And year by year, they, they continue to be around the same figures. But they weren't necessarily, wasn't necessarily meaning that people were dying more by suicide, but that often happens in disasters as well, because people come together and people are aware and people are supporting each other. The danger time is more after this, where you've got people going off in different, different ways, and for some people it's harder than for others. I think sometimes the focus on the suicide risk itself is where we're going wrong. I think it's about the lack of all the things that are in the person's life that suicide thoughts even appear. Yeah. I think that's, Love. which is the Belonging. philosophical sort of stuff or yeah. the, you know, psychology is from the philosophy kind of meaning of life kind of approach rather than the science of risk. Yeah. So I think the more we just get stuck on the risk and managing the risk, we're losing sight of what's actually going on, what's not being met, what needs are not being met in people and young people and why would that be continuing to be an issue and it's so all of those those factors the social determinants of health all the factors that that are telling us that that people are struggling and what does it mean for young people and life meaning just having fun the pressures on people so many so many things that are, that are obviously in kids lives and are not being met so the more we focus on suicide as as the thing we're kind of perhaps missing what's underneath again it's it's a behavior it's a thought yeah. or a behavior what's underneath it what is it that we actually need it's to look underneath up. yeah what are the drivers of it that's kind of where we need to be looking a bit more i think but we have to keep kids safe as much as we can and that's where we you fall in that trap all the time so i'm yeah. often talking about we need to do the safety stuff but we need to work out what this means and we have to put energy into that. It's a complex situation, yes, but yes. something that's very real. And I'm glad you brought that up um, to talk, to touch on you know, suicide. And, and obviously you've written a book on it. And the safety plan, I think, is really interesting. I think we, we should all take a look at that. Lynn, what else is there that we need to touch on? Is there anything else that we've... I think that's probably enough. Okay. Mental health professionals looking after themselves would be the other. Self-care. The self-care and, and more than self-care. Like I think, yeah, self-care is often the token, you know, grind. People cringe at it these <laughs> days. Know, we kind of hear about it. we want something a bit more, but the this kind of the centering stuff, what am I doing, why am I doing it, kind of connecting back to that. Purpose, so yeah. for me it's interesting looking at my decades of work and going back to where I began in a way, but in a more sophisticated, advanced, different kind of way, but still feeling like some of the things haven't shifted a lot. So, yeah, I think that kind of focus. So, yeah, getting back to our own sense of what we're doing and why we're doing it and connecting 
with each other in ways that are that are meaningful and hopefully we can keep doing more of that face to face because I think yeah the virtual stuff is is useful and helpful but there's something about actually sitting with people that that is useful as well so yeah trying to to think about what that might might mean whether it is more training in particular area that that we can enjoy so stimulating ourselves and, and getting energy from from what we're doing or cutting back and focusing on certain things and not trying to do everything as well so trying to just pinpoint what is it that we're trying to do here and and feel good about that rather than feeling overwhelmed by what are big big issues that don't seem to be getting any better so i think yeah managing all of that and thinking how do i how am i here for the long haul and how do I kind of work out what I need to do and having our plans perhaps for month or six months and a 12-month period to try and help help manage ourselves is more yeah. important as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's such an important thing to do because you're right, if you're not careful, that uh, you burn yourself out. And mm. are there any other tips you have for self-care or, or improvement? Yeah, yeah uh, I think it's just everyone's got their own, they know, and yeah. sometimes that gets lost it's very much what we talk to clients about, really. I guess we're often talking to people about what they should be doing. That routine yes. writing for me is, is really, really useful. I always feel like I should be doing more exercise. So all of those sorts of things. Sleep is really underestimated for, for us as well, that thinking about our sleep hygiene. I think all of those very basic things are really important. Yes. And finding some ways to sort of be connecting with people outside of our work as well is also really important. And, and thinking about, you know, who are we as people as well? as mental health professionals so we don't feel like we're always carrying that that kind of load and having a balance in our work so for me that means doing some half of my week is private practice direct client work and the other half is, is more academic training yeah. type writing type stuff so that's a good balance for me so finding our own balance I guess is important well it certainly sounds like you're I mean you're well and truly on the path and you're clearly enjoying what you're doing have you got another book that you're going to be well, writing? Well, actually, there is a book with a publisher, oh, but publishing yeah. takes a really, really long time. <laughs> and so I had a, a book that was for parents of younger kids around suicide prevention as well, oh. because, again, sadly, yeah, that's, that's kind of there. So it's with the publisher, but, yeah, it takes a while. So maybe okay. I'll send in this podcast we'll and that might have put a bit of pressure on. We'll keep, so we'll keep everyone post on that. And uh, yeah. so where will people hear about that on your website? Well, yeah, can yeah, I do have a website. I have yep. LinkedIn. I have a website. The Keeping Our Kids Alive Facebook page is a yep. good good spot for, yeah, see things. So, yeah, LinkedIn is a good spot as well. Yeah. Well, Lynn O'Grady, it's been a wonderful conversation. I mean, I really enjoyed getting to know and hear more about what you're up to, but also the great work that you're doing around parenting and and better trying to recognise and understand the children of parents because uh, if we can prevent it and better understand those signals earlier, yep. we stand a better chance down the down the track of getting on top of it and creating better outcomes for, for our future generations. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for your time no and problem. we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Sam. It's been really interesting. Thought-provoking for me as well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, 
Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.